Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 5th, 2018, and this is episode 2,231 of the Survival Podcast. We missed yesterday, it was a Monday, so we are off our regularly scheduled programming, but uh, we're going to kind of sort of get back on it. I'm going to do the Monday show today because, as I've said before, the questions and comments and things that come in, those are one of the priorities that I have to make sure that I'm talking about. Because you guys, you know, that's that's my duty to you guys, I think, is the things that you're concerned about that you want to know about to make sure they get covered. Also, my intro segment today is going to be why I wasn't on the air yesterday. And, and a warning for you guys out there about something I think a lot of people... Um, don't take seriously enough, and that is uh, the concept of heat injuries and dehydration. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. So first of all, I am going to, it's not really a feedback, but I'm sure I've had a lot of inquiries like, well, what was wrong yesterday? Um, I got dehydrated is, is the best way to put it, and it really wasn't a direct heat exhaustion thing. I'll talk about when I get to it, but uh, several weeks of pushing myself too hard with the heat, not drinking enough water, and I've always been the guy that can... Uh, can tolerate a lot of that and have never had really a, a heat exhaustion, heat, uh, a stroke, a, uh, a dehydration problem uh, in spite of probably not being as on top of it as I had. And, and the reality is things catch up with us as we age. We're going to talk about something uh, called cumulative dehydration and the effects it has on the body and why it put me down for the count for several days. Uh, we're going to talk about the Department of Homeland Security is building another list and pretty sure TSP will be on it, basically uh, news sources, bloggers, social media influencers, and, and the way they're doing it is, is kind of creepy and disturbing and not something that should be going on in America. Um, I have a question on how close I would live to a nuclear power plant, and the answer is, well, it depends. Uh, a question on snakes and keeping them away, running them off, etc. I'm calling it on snake repellent and why it doesn't work and why you should mostly just freaking relax. Uh, more on our 10th anniversary get-together, uh, making a career switch that doesn't drastically reduce or that does drastically reduce at least perceived security. Uh, when you, you, know, you have a job that pretty much, unless you rob a liquor store or something, you're not going to get fired, you're going to get a retirement out of it, and you hate it, and you're thinking about doing something else, and, and maybe or maybe not you can replace the income, but that security definitely goes away, and how do you make that decision? And a segment I'm calling The State is Like Upgrade, He Gonna Get His Money. And those of you that are familiar with me, uh, Idiocracy, the movie, uh, know kind of where that's coming from. But it's a, it's a question that, uh, or really more an article sent to me by a guy named John, who sends me a lot of great stuff that said, Tennessee, really? And I'm like, yeah, uh, of course, and you'll understand when we get to it. And then uh, my final segment today, people are keeping chickens. Uh, so there are cries for government to be involved. It's, it, it, it just... It just amazes me um, how quickly people turn to government for solutions. And in this case, it's not even really government that's interjecting itself. It's a third party screaming that government needs to be involved. Uh, I'm sure there's ties that go back to uh, to business and industry, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But I, I think the bigger problem is, Even if that's the case, that wouldn't be the case, uh, or maybe that doesn't sound right, um, 
even if it is the case that industry would push something like this or that big money would be pushed into something like this when it seems like it wouldn't be uh, because of perceived threats to big food or big ag or what have you, um, if people weren't so susceptible to this kind of hysteria uh, and fear-mongering, then they wouldn't do it. In, in other words, yeah, these big companies do this crap, but they only do it because it works. If you, I was watching a, a documentary yesterday called uh, The 80s, The Decade That Made Us. There were several episodes of it that we had taped. It was really interesting, but one of the, the big takeaways I got from it was New Coke. And how that in the 80s, advertisers became completely convinced that they could convince the public of anything. But when they came out with new Coke, people dumped it out in the streets. And it wasn't long before Coke said, hey, we're bringing back Coca-Cola Classic alongside new Coke, which then just went away and went back to being regular Coke. Because in the end, people do get the final say, just as we'll talk about today with a little piece that includes the movie Idiocracy. That doesn't mean that it's always a good thing. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. You can find his website at Directive21, and it might not surprise you that you will find all things Berkey at the Berkey Guy's website. Uh, filters, entire systems, and other components and parts and support for your Berkey. You can get it all from the Berkey Guy. And you should go to the Berkey Guy for your water filtration needs, especially if you obviously want a Berkey. Um, and, and the reason is simple. He's called the Berkey Guy because he's like the, the actual Berkey Guy, the original Berkey Guy, the guy that's been doing this for just about longer than anybody else, one of the first and most successful distributors for Berkey there is out there. You know, you don't want to get your Berkey stuff from the guy at the gun show that got into water treatment yesterday because his buddy told him that he might want to, that type of thing. You want somebody that's going to take care of you. Jeff will do that. He's a maniac at customer service. I mean, he really is. I've had him on discussion panels where he was answering customer service questions in the middle of a discussion panel on his iPad tablet. I mean, that, that's just the kind of dedication the guy has. And he has a lot of other cool stuff for your prepping needs at directive21.com, and he doesn't offer a discount for members of the support brigade you can find in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Everything you could ever want for your prepping needs all in one place at Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. These guys have been with us since almost day one. In fact, they, they offered to sponsor the show before I was even willing to accept a sponsor. I mean, really think about that. Like, I'm sitting here with like a couple hundred people listening to this show. It's 2008. It's like August. I've been doing the show for like two and a half months, and I hear from this guy, Vic Rontala, and he's like, hey, yeah, we want to sponsor your show. And I'm like, uh, uh, no, I, I, I don't have enough. I, I, I can't take your money. I mean, that was literally the conversation. Like, I cannot take your money. Well, you know, when you're ready, let us know. We'll, we'll be here. We know what you're doing. We know it's going to be successful. They, and we, we brought them on board, I think it was February of 2009, was the first sponsor we ever brought on board. And we built the entire sponsorship program around how we did the research to make sure they qualified as a sponsor. Uh, they've never let a customer down, to my knowledge, ever. They have a great discount program, by the way. It's $29 a year, and you get big discounts on like everything they sell. But if you're an MSB member here at the Survival Podcast, you get a lifetime membership to it free. Huge supporters, lots of great stuff. Check them out today at safecastle.com. And let me remind you just real quick, if you like the show and the work that we do, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support this show at about 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more 
by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. And the discounts you get will more than pay for your membership. That makes it a win-win-win situation. You guys win because you support the show and you get your money back. I win because I get to continue to do the work that I love to do and serve you guys. And the sponsors and, and, and providers and vendors and partners win because they get business they wouldn't otherwise have. So it's a great deal. You can learn more, again, the survivalpodcast.com and click on the Members tab. With that, let's get into this. So what happened to me yesterday? Well, it didn't really happen to me yesterday. It might surprise some of you. It happened on Saturday. So for the past few weeks, I've even made some jokes on uh, Facebook and stuff about you know getting things done with the new build on the aquaponics system. It, it's been just bloody hot here. And uh, I've you know, said things like, well, I almost passed out today, but I got more progress done, and I'd post you know, videos of what I did and all. And it wasn't really a joke. I mean, I was working to the point where I was really like, i got to stop or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a heat injury. And while working, I was drinking water and stuff like that, but I was sweating it as quickly as I was drinking it. I also started drinking coffee again recently and uh, even trying to control my flow with the French press. You know, end up making five, six cups of strong coffee a day. Uh, that's very dehydrating. And, and as you're, if you drink one thing, you drink less of something else, i.e. water. Uh, and unlike a lot of uh, herbal teas and things like that that are quite hydrating, coffee is quite dehydrating. So all of it accumulated. And uh, I did mix a drink, so I did have alcohol, but it was very, those of you guys who know me, I, I can drink a few drinks. I had uh, one margarita and uh, sat down and uh, was, was enjoying that. In front of the TV set, my wife was out at the pool, and uh, all of a sudden the room started spinning. And I mean bad, like complete and total disorientation. And um, it got bad enough, and I started sweating. And I, I knew right away that it was dehydration. I could tell by what was going on, even though I was so disoriented. And I took my shirt off. I, I sat down on the floor because it was uh, cold tile to take the heat away from me. And I called my wife, and she tried to get some water into me. And as usually happens, when you get in that state, your first attempt at drinking water is going to result in violent vomiting, which it did. And uh, then I was able to get some water down, uh, eventually crawl into bed. And if it had gotten much worse, I would have either had her dial 911 or get me into the car and take me into the ER for fluids. And looking back on it, that might have been a better choice. And if you ever get in a situation and you're not sure, go. Um, in any event, I was able to drink a lot of water and a lot of Gatorade. I wasn't able to eat anything till the next day. Uh, then it started with bland foods, and usually when that happens, you're pretty much recovered. The Sunday, I was flat out on my back all day. I did watch some TV and all. It was very disoriented uh, as far as, not really disoriented. I knew what was going on, but uh, like I, would, I, I couldn't walk well. I was very discombobulated, uh, off balance, and if I moved my head certain ways, I, I got off balance. And I figured, well, you know, I'll drink a ton of Gatorade. I drank like three quarts of Gatorade. Uh, and ate fairly well uh, later in the day and uh, went to sleep at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, slept until morning, got up, felt pretty good until I started moving around, and then again, still not being uh, really able to, uh, to keep my balance well. And uh, much better than the day before, and certainly better than the day that it happened, but it was to the point when I sat down and did my morning emails, I felt nauseous, and I just was like, I can't concentrate. And I'm not going to do a show like that and prolong my recovery. Uh, and I'm also not going to do a show like that and do a shitty job for you guys. So I ended up going, going to bed for a couple hours early in the morning and then getting up. And I watched a bunch of TV and cooking shows and stuff like that and really had a pretty decent day off. 
by the time dinner came around, I had drank a lot, I had eaten you know small amounts of food and, and stuff that I normally won't eat that's more you know off the paleo thing, like I was eating macaroni bland stuff like that, which is what you need when you're recovering. And I made uh, lobster and crab legs for dinner last night, so don't feel too bad for me and had a good dinner. Uh, got up this morning, feel pretty good, was able to uh, go out, check on all the things on the property and stuff like that. Still really minding my P's and Q's, though, and still being a little bit off balance. Uh, this being several days later, um, I can look left and right now, and I don't have any vertigo or any type of, um, of feeling of like I'm going to be off balance. But if I lift my head straight up backwards, I still have a little bit of it. And if I was walking a straight line for a cop right now for a sobriety check, even though I haven't had a drink since Saturday and that was one, uh, I would fail the test. And uh, again, I'm the guy that was, I'm always the person that's been rendering aid to others in this situation. I've always been the guy that's been able to tolerate this. But, you know, I'm almost 46 years old now. And uh, this stuff catches up with us all. None of us are immune to it. And what I really wanted to talk to you about today is not, oh, poor me, this happened to me, and I was stupid, and I shouldn't do it, and you shouldn't be either. More along the lines of, like, you have to think about preventing this type of thing, specifically as a prepper, for the times when you can't afford to be this way. Because can you imagine if I've been pushing myself like this, and we had some sort of an emergency, and in the middle of this emergency, my wife's dealing with a guy that could even walk to the bed without her help, uh, needing to get to an ER for fluids if it was a little bit worse. And when you can't do that. And as a leader of my home, it's incumbent upon me to not let myself get into that state. So I'm kind of coming up with a new regime to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I've always been big on lecturing others about it, but I've never been that great about making sure it doesn't happen to me because, well, it never has. You know, I've been the guy that's been able to work until other people literally do fall out and uh, pick them up, get them some help, and, and keep going. And, uh, you know, you start to feel good. I've lost a lot of weight uh, in the last year. Uh, I got myself into a lot better shape. So you really think, well, now I can. But you're still, you know, 20 years older than that guy you think you still are when you were 24, 26 years old. And uh, as we get older, these things catch up on us more. And don't think that lets you off the hook. And part of the reason that I immediately knew, in spite of the fact that I was sitting in an air-conditioned room, uh, sitting on a couch with my feet propped up, it was a dehydration thing, as I've seen it so often, specifically in the military. And I've seen people in situations where you would not think that that, that would be the problem. Uh, and it's always been the case, you know, you get them to a place where they get some uh, some potassium and fluids into them, uh, either orally or in many times by IV, and all of a sudden it's like turning the lights back on. Uh, what I've not seen is a lot of what I have with these lingering effects, but I've talked to people and it is something that does happen. So please, you know, I, I talk about procedures and, and protocols all the time. Uh, and for those who haven't heard me talk about procedures are the things that you do every day and protocols are what you do when something goes wrong. And I think when it comes to heat injury that we need to have procedures and protocols in place for the eventuality of it happening because the procedures failed. And the procedures need to be things like making sure that we're adequately, adequately hydrated. Um, if we feel weak at all in the heat, we need to quit. Not work another 15 minutes, not work another half hour, not do that four or five days in a row for three or four weeks in a row. And that's that's exactly what happened to me. Pushing myself to the point where, like, uh, I can go just a little bit more. I can go just a little bit more. I can go just a little bit more. And then, you know, waking up Saturday morning feeling fine, going to Home Depot, which 
probably stressed me and made me more susceptible to this, but certainly wasn't any kind of heat exhaustion moment. Uh, stopping by the grocery store, getting home, and, and deciding, like, I'm going to take it easy today and not do any work today. i got parts to work with tomorrow when it's cooler out, and uh, sitting down and, boom, just being hit with it. And it's, it, it's not cool <laughs> at all. So, you know, the procedures are all the things you do to prevent a hat. Protocols are things that you do if it goes wrong. And, and always be open to going to get fluids at the ER. That's, that's one of the things that, that can be life-saving in certain situations. And honestly, if it was any worse, like I said, I would have either had my wife help me to the car or probably dialed 911 for fear of being in the car uh, without care. Um, and sometimes maybe that's necessary, too. Uh, and then protocols, like... One of the things I said, and it's true, is in my experience anyway, most of the time when this is treated orally with just you know fluids and waters and, and things like Pedialyte or Gatorade or any type of uh, uh, thing like that, or just water is really best initially, usually the person does vomit. And usually the person cannot drink well without a straw. Uh, I make jokes sometimes that straws are for people that suck and for women with lipstick, uh, that I don't only see the utility of a straw. Well, when you're in a dehydration moment, you suck. I sucked bad. And uh, so the straw is applicable. And uh, so just having straws around alone so that when somebody's in that situation, you can get water into them and being prepared for the, you know, projectile vomiting, which is gross, but it's, it, it, it's almost every instance that I've been in where either we did not seek higher-level medical care and we used oral uh, water for this, or it was because we had to, um, almost immediately vomiting occurs. And then after that, that person's able to slowly take in water. And that's absolutely necessary uh, to, to balance the equation. So that's what I have to say on that. Make sure you're prepared for it, including if you have people with expertise, uh, having the equipment to provide fluids intravenously uh, would be a good thing, especially in a grid-down scenario, because sometimes that is the only thing that separates a person from life and death. Uh, it is that serious. When you have extreme vertigo, what that means is you've been dehydrated enough that your blood pressure has dropped and you're not getting blood to your brain and your other organs. That's what that means. Uh, so looking back again, I probably should have gone to the ER. I have recovered well, and that does not mean to follow my example. Uh, let's talk about something else. I got an email. Let's see who it's from here so I give proper credit where credit is due comes from Russell, and Russell says, I know you're not worried, but you're probably on the list. And it's an, uh, an article um, at Zero Hedge, which is not one of the places I rely on heavily for my opinions on news. Uh, they are a bit out there in the uh, conspiracy theory world. But I also, I don't care where information comes from if it's accurate, and this is accurate and well-sourced, and it's by Tyler Durden, who generally does a good job even if his opinions go out in the world woo, of sourcing his data. Um, but the title of the article is Department of Homeland Security compiles a list of all bloggers, journalists, and social media influencers. Let me read that to you. Many were hoping that once Barack Obama was out of office, we'd see less of Big Brother surveillance nonsense, but instead it seems to be getting even worse. Um, hold on. Uh, the truth is that... Uh, uh, if you expected that, you didn't pay attention. You didn't pay attention because Donald Trump was all about this stuff and ramping it up during his campaign. Just want to say that. Uh, but back to the article. In fact, the Department of Homeland Security has just announced that it intends to compile a comprehensive list of hundreds of thousands of journalists, editors, correspondents, social media influencers, bloggers, etc., and collect any information that could be relevant about them. 
So if you have a website or an important blog, you are just very active on social media, the Department of Homeland Security is going to put you on a list and start collecting information about you. The DHS has already announced that it will hire a contractor to aid in monitoring media coverage, and they will definitely need plenty of help because they're going to get a, it's going to be a very big job. As part of media monitoring, DHS seeks to track more than 290,000 global news sources as well as social media in over 100 languages, including Arabic, Chinese, and Russian, for instance, translation into, for instant translation into English. The successful contracting company will have 24-7 access to password-protective media influencer database, including journalists, editors, correspondents, social media influencers, bloggers, etc., in order to, quote, identify any and all media coverage related to the Department of Homeland Security or a particular event, and quote, quote, any and all media coverage, as, end quote, as you might imagine, is broad and includes, quote, online, print, broadcast, cable, radio, trade and industry publications, local sources, national, international outlets, traditional news sources, and social media. End quote. If this sounds extremely creepy to you, that's because it is extremely creepy. I run several prominent websites, this is the author, not me, including the most important news and the Economic Collapse blog, so without a doubt, I will be on the list. And if I was just the name on a list, some database somewhere, that would be bad enough. But instead, it sounds like DHS will be collecting, quote, any information that could be relevant about all of us. As Gizmodo noted, the DHS vagueness is also a concern. It leaves itself opening for collecting of, quote, any other information that could be relevant, end quote, about these influencers. And there's no hint as to what that could be. It is strictly Is it strictly functional information like work histories or sensitive data that could be abused? Either way, the database could be troublesome for bloggers and social media stars who aren't usually under such close government scrutiny. The rest of the article you can read if you want to. But I, I, I tend to agree with the opinion here, not just the facts. And that's what I'm saying. Is with zero hedge, often I agree with the facts, but not the opinion. I don't really care that government would go out and take a list of media outlets, including mine, and say, what is being said is important to us, so we should monitor what's being said, if it ended there. Well, of course, I do not trust them to even do that right. But when they start saying, okay, so since, we let's say they put TSP on the, web, the list, and let me tell you something, folks. I do tracking on my website like any good marketer, and I do not hold data or use data or sell data, but I do look at where traffic comes from. And things like Department of Homeland Security, um, uh, IP addresses and, and, and backtracking where they're not trying to hide what they're doing have been showing up on my website since almost the beginning. So I know there's people there. Now, I also know that some of that is people that are actually well-intentioned. We have people at DHS, at FEMA, etc., that actually in, appreciate what we do here. And actually pay attention. So some of that traffic is just people that are listeners and 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 collaborators, uh, and then some of that traffic is probably people that are of the more nefarious type. But since this data is all public, since you know I put out the information I put out for anybody and everybody to read, to see, to listen to, etc. Making a list of that and saying, hey, we're monitoring information in and of itself is, is not that concerning because if I didn't want the data out there, I wouldn't put it out there. Now, collecting data on me or my users or my commenters or people that retweet my shit, uh, specifically personal information and putting those individuals on a list is not something done in a free republic. 
It is something done in a fascist state. And I have been saying from, uh, for years, the United States is a fascist state. And the problem with fascism in today's world, it has become synonymous with Nazi. And Nazi has been become synonymous with Hitler. And therefore, it's anti-Semitic, and it's racist, and it's anti-Jewish, and it's, you know, put people in concentration camps, and it's hanging people, and uh, it's burning crosses, and it's blood and soil, and it's all that shit. I guess true Nazism, yeah, sure. Uh, if that's where you want to take that, there's that faction of Nazism. The, the danger of fascism, and let's just leave it with fascism instead of Nazism, because it's maybe a little easier for people to, to separate in their heads, is that, number one, it works. That's one of the big problems with fascism as an economic system. It works, and it works better than most other forms of socialism because it looks most like capitalism even though it's not. And I know that sounds really, really weird, but a good way to understand this would be to watch a, 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 a series of movies. Uh, it's a made-for uh, Amazon Prime movie series, I guess you'd call it, uh, called The Man in the Iron Castle. Or uh, I'm sorry, is is that right? The Man in the Iron Castle? No, that's wrong. The, uh, the Man in the High Castle. And the, the concept of the Man in the High Castle is that Germany and Japan won World War II. And I think there's a lot of things in this that are not done that great, but some of it's done very well and very accurately as to the way things would have worked out. And the Japanese viewed America as someone to just take over an imperialistic standpoint, and therefore the Western states that the Japanese control are very dark and dank and, and not a place you'd want to live even you know if you were doing relatively okay. The eastern United States and then the center of the United States is like a neutral zone in the Rocky Mountain uh, ridge lines and stuff like that up in Denver and all, where they just figured it wasn't worth it and they just left it to itself. The eastern United States, if you didn't know about all the murder and death and stuff going on, it, it looks like 1960s America, which is when this is set in the 1960s. The women dress exactly the way they did in America in the 1960s and everything, you know, there's nice suburbs and, and what have you. And, and this is what fascism can do. And that doesn't mean it's right, it doesn't mean it's okay. But because fascism so much looks like, in some ways, capitalism, it allows for a perceived prosperity and a relative prosperity for the people that are left alone as long as they don't make waves, which is one of the tools that fascists use to control people. Hey, nice life you have there. Be ashamed if somebody screwed it up. And it doesn't have to be a gas chamber to screw up your life, does it? Maybe it's just a letter from the IRS. And what fascism really is, is a, a, a system of governance through economics. And understand that all governance is through economics. If you, if you look at all systems of governance, other than voluntarism and anarchism, which are actually systems of economics as well, really, but since they don't control anyone, they kind of go off on their own. But if you look at socialism, if you look at pure communism, if you look at capitalism, if you look at fascism, all of these systems are systems that rely on economics for control. And what fascism says is, hey, there's differences between the classes, that's good. The state and industry can mediate those differences and leverage them, class warfare, to their advantage. And in a fascist system, it's basically a corporatocracy at a layer where select companies are allowed to build whatever they want, do whatever they want, make as much money as they want, as long as they submit to control by government. And what we have in our country is neo-fascism where the government actually only exercises so much control because the money is now going from the corporate side to the state side versus the other way around. 
therefore putting the corporate-tocracy and the oligarchy in charge, but using the state to the same ends. And when you get a government doing that, it gets very dangerous very quickly, and one of the most dangerous things you can do is speak the truth, because you end up on lists. And just because you won't end up rounded up and loaded on a train car doesn't mean that you won't have your life destroyed. And that's not really happening en masse right now. It's happening very selectively right now, but it's happening more than we realize. And this is a step in that direction, putting people on a list and collecting personal information on them. Now, I personally believe the reason this is only so concerning is I believe that dossiers are being built on every human being in America. And generally, they're not scrutinized very much. But the minute that you step outside the boundaries to the point where you actually become a concern, all of a sudden, the news has a story about you saying something racist in a tweet 20 years ago. I know Twitter's not been around for 20 years, but someday it will have been. And it may not even be racist. It may be out of context. But now we can destroy your life because you've become really successful and you've started to influence people. But we can go back and dig this one thing out and ruin you. And it's amazing that all of a sudden, you know, when a person becomes a problem, that that data just shows up so easily for people. As though the media itself really has the time to sit down and scour thousands and tens of thousands of tweets to find the one tweet some person did you know, eight years ago, or the one blog post, you know, they find like this one person recently that found blog posts by them that uh, they don't, they're not even online anymore. They found them at a site called archive.org. Basically what Archive did all over the years is it takes, and this is the one thing about online, shit never goes away. So archive.org would come into your website and take a snapshot of it and save a copy of it. So I have, for instance, it's been useful to me, a blog I used to do called Comtech News way back before TSP. And there's things that I wrote about as far as technology evolutions and stuff like that. And have people go, bullshit, you didn't say that. And the blog's gone, so I can't show the blog. But I can go into archive and say, okay, well, here in March of 2005, for instance, this is where I said this is what was going to happen with the music industry, for instance, and this is what happened with the music industry. So that exists. So, yeah, journalists had time to go back and find a blog that's not been online for five years. You see what I'm saying? This doesn't make sense. And this is where this stuff leads, and it's very concerning, and it's not something to like start jumping out of your window over, but it is something to keep an eye on. And it's we need to change as people, because just like I said earlier, that corporations only do things because they work. Well, government only does things because they work. And when we can get people all upset because somebody said something that was offensive five years ago, ten years ago, whatever, without even knowing the context for it, then they're going to do that. We, we really need to get to the point where we're like, you know, unless somebody's actually causing somebody a problem, I don't give a shit what they said when they were angry or pissed off or drunk or on Ambien or that they didn't stand for a song or that they kneeled some. Like, we need to get over this shit. Like, what other people do doesn't actually affect us. And the mass delusion that fascism uses and all systems of control and all systems of government uses is that this person over here who did not take food from your refrigerator who did not interfere with your ability to, to love your spouse, that did not take food off of your table, that did not take money out of your bank account, that did not prevent you from doing your job, that did not prevent you from going to your church, that did not prevent you from putting your hand on your heart, that did not prevent you personally from doing anything, must be controlled in some way. Because what they're doing is dangerous because they differ from you. And, and that is the mechanism of control. And if we start getting to the point where until you do something that harms me or another human being, I don't give a shit. 
that we're susceptible to this method of control. It's time for us to kind of evolve a little bit as human beings and start to understand. You have an opinion that I disagree with, and I might even find your opinion repulsive and repugnant and just disgusting. But as long as it doesn't have action behind it, then I really don't give a shit. If you take that action, then you need to be held liable for the harm that you've caused another human. Or if you encourage an action in a way that causes harm to another person, you need to be taken accountable for your level of responsibility there. But otherwise, I just don't care. That doesn't mean that those actions come without consequences. If you do something repugnant, then I don't want to be part of your life anymore. And I'm not going to pay attention to your shit, and that might hurt you. But I don't care what the NFL does. I don't care what NBC or CBS or TBS does. I don't care what the pig, disgusting pig of a human being that Samantha B says, because I don't watch her show. I don't care. I care about the things that affect me, my family, my audience, the people that I care about, and the people that I love. And the more that we do that, the more we take control back into our own lives. And the, the less these things affect us, because what's the other option? What are you going to do, stop them from doing this? You're not going to stop them from doing this. What are you going to do, vote a new clown in office in 2020? You think he's going to stop or she's going to stop doing this? You think Hillary Clinton wouldn't be doing this? You think if we didn't have term limits and Barack Obama was, was president, then we wouldn't be doing this? Who the hell wouldn't do this? Oh, I know, Rand Paul. What do you think his chances of becoming president are? Less than zero. I'm more likely to be president than Rand Paul. That, that's, a, that's a fundamental reality. And I don't want the job. Okay? So... This stuff's going to happen. Government's going to do these things. What we control is how we react to them. Let's take another one. The next one is a giant, it depends. Uh, Dan writes, he says, What is the minimum distance from a nuclear power plant that we'd feel safe if purchasing a homestead? I've listened to your podcast on purchasing a homestead, and we are looking into limited area due to work and family constraints. Unfortunately, most of the reasonably priced property in the area is located within a 5- to 10-mile radius of a nuclear power plant. I've been unable to find good guidance for any research regarding minimum safe distance for growing plants, animals, water quality, raising a family, etc. I am also concerned, although less so, about a plant being a target for disaster, either man-made or natural. Well, Dan... There's a big it depends there. I mean, I want to know more about this nuclear power plant if it's me, right? Like, well, when was it built? What level of technology is it built with? Is it like a first generation, second generation plant, et cetera? Uh, what is the. I'll leave that out because I'm going to go, what is the potential for natural disasters? Um, because that's actually far, far more my concern. The average nuclear power plant in America today has if you're five miles away from it, has almost no effect on you whatsoever. I, 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 I'm actually, I would actually be more worried from direct environmental consequences of being five to ten miles away from a cogeneration coal plant, especially an early version of it, than the average nuclear power plant today. I, I really would. Now, I'm not saying we do nuclear power right. We should be building thorium reactors, which produce almost no waste, and if there's a problem, they basically just stop. They're a much safer technology, and there's a lot of reasons we're not doing it. And seldom are, are the reasons given by the conspiracy crowd the right reasons. We're not really building any nuclear power plants at this point because there's so much fear over nuclear energy, etc. And so it's we're not doing any of it, it, it is the real problem. And if you want clean energy... Thorium nuclear is probably the cleanest energy we could produce, uh, the most energy we can produce with current technology, uh, and would be a good bridge to a much more sustainable world. Now, I will say there is a lot holding back 
all forms of energy outside of petroleum because there's so much money in petroleum. And a lot of people think, oh, it's Exxon and, you know, Shell and, and what have you. And there, there's a lot of that. But it's, it's, it's countries. I mean, I think a lot of people don't even understand some of the countries that run huge portions of their economy because they have petroleum reserves. Uh, we think of, you know, the Middle East. We think of Canada with the tar sands. We think of Mexico. We think of Venezuela because they've been in the news so much from socialism. Uh, but a lot of socialist countries couldn't exist with their socialist state uh, without revenues from uh, petroleum products. Russia is a perfect example. But how about a country you wouldn't even think of? How about Norway? You should check out how, how big an influence petroleum sales are for Norway's government and their ability to run the programs that they have. So, you know, you know the United States as well, uh, highly vested in its corporatocracy in petroleum products. And, and the most influent, China with coal. China has huge coal reserves. So the most powerful countries in the world have a vested interest in continuing to keep value in petroleum products. That's another reason I think it's not going forward. But, but back to Dan's question. Um, I'm not worried about the nuclear power plant, you know, creating a cloud of dangerous nuclear reactive material while it's operating at, in its normal functions. Um, in fact, if you look at the most recent nuclear disaster with Fukushima, and I, I, I was the guy that was level-headed through the whole thing, I said, just calm the hell down. Um, a person relatively close to Fukushima got less nuclear radiation into their body than the typical person does from a couple x-rays. And that's a fact. Um, I'm not saying there's no problems with all the shit that ran into the ocean, but in the end, the global effect of Fukushima is almost nothing. And in fact, the safest place you could have been probably would have been on the you know non-ocean side, but fairly close to the Fukushima reactors when it went off. Um, almost no one there has been affected by anything, including all the people that evacuated. I have a really interesting article today uh, called What Was the Fallout from Fukushima? It's worth reading. It's long, so I'm not going to read it. I don't want the show to go too long. I'm still in recovery from the stuff we talked about earlier. But um, it, it really is less concerning than I think people make it out to be. Five to ten miles, though, I, 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 it gives me a little bit of pause. And it, what I would say is let's go as far as we can without getting ridiculous. You know, can we get 15? Can we get 20? And that's more for is there going to be a problem? And so then I want to look at what is the potential for natural disasters. That's actually my biggest concern for nuclear power plants, more than terrorist attack. Um, they're actually fairly hardened targets, and it's difficult in many ways for a terrorist to actually do something that causes a major malfunction at a nuclear power plant. I'm not saying impossible, but it's, it, there's other things that are easier for them to do that make more sense for them to do, and that's more likely that they would do those things, if that makes sense. However, you look at Fukushima as a perfect example. Um, you get an earthquake and a tsunami. You have nuclear power plants on the coast. You're going to have a problem. I mean, you're going to have a, there's, there's just no doubt about it. You're going to have a problem. So, you know, where is it? What are the most likely natural disasters? What does flooding mean? And what is the potential for flooding where the plant is? Because the reality is all these plants need massive amounts of water for both cooling and for power generation. Because in the end, as complicated as a nuclear power plant seems, 
What we do is we heat up nuclear material and we boil water with it to make steam to turn a turbine. In the end, that's all we're doing. Now, the how we do that is complicated, but what we're doing is that simple. So we need water. So none of these things are like in the middle of a desert, where we, you know, like a place where we set nuclear bombs off for testing for 40 years above ground, and nothing really happened. Because you can't really build one there because you don't have the water necessary to be able to do it. So flooding is always a concern. Earthquake is always a concern. Fire is a concern, but less so. Um, because they're pretty well hardened against that, and it's pretty a defense. They're all, you know, they make those things pretty defensible against fire. Um, if you get into war, you know, bombing of one is certainly something to be concerned about. But I think we have bigger problems if we go that far. Um, but I would, I want to say I wouldn't be concerned with being 10 miles from a nuclear plant, but the reality is I would. I would, I would try to get further away, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 miles. That, 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 and, and again, a lot of it depends on. When was this plant built? What are the actual threats around it? Um, what are current readings? You can actually find that out around it. But I, I wouldn't worry about eating the eggs of a chicken that was grown 10 miles away from a, a modern, well-equipped nuclear facility. I, I just wouldn't. Um, I, I'm much more concerned about disaster uh, of one form or another than I. And, and, and you know, hopefully, in that situation, you have time to evac. Definitely, I think if you're going to live in a place like that, then you need to know your evac strategy if something goes wrong. You need to look at common drift of air, where fallout would be. Uh, you need to be ready to jump before others do because often people will stay in place longer than they should, things like that. But that's true of anything. You just need to take that into account with your evac strategy. Next question comes from Trevor. Trevor says, I need to know how to run away a king snake from my house. Jack, it's Trevor from North Louisiana. I live on just over an acre just outside of town. I have a heavily wooded area that takes up one quarter to one third of my property that's in the back of my backyard. I've been thinning it out quite heavily over the past year, uh, more so over the last two to three months. I'm planning to use the area to expand my backyard, uh, plant some small-scale food forests. I saw a speckled kingsake in the back 40, which is what I call the area. Since it was in the back edge of the property, I left it alone. Well done. Well, today I nearly stepped on one walking back inside that was lying right next to my back doorstep. It was different, much smaller one than I saw previously. I tried to kill it with a shovel. I know, I know, I just reacted. But I missed it. It escaped under my back deck. Good for the snake, dude. Uh, despite trying to kill it with a shovel, I really don't want the snake dead, but I definitely don't want it so close to my house since my young kids and I play out there all the time, including my one-year-old daughter. Yes, I know, they aren't aggressive or venomous, and it still makes me uncomfortable. I am mostly concerned with one of the kids leaving the back door cracked one day, and it will come inside. Is there a surefire way to get it out from under my deck into my back 40 where it belongs? Because we all know where they belong, right? Um, I don't want to kill a snake for sure, but I won't cry if it, does make it doesn't make it out alive. My deck is only built a few inches un under the ground, so someone crawling under there isn't possible. Mothball is some kind of spray. Thanks in advance. You're best. Uh, you're the best. God bless, Trevor. I don't know if you'll think I'm the best after I let you have it here a little bit anyway. Okay, first of all, I'm going to tell you this. Snake repellent doesn't work. Snake repellent doesn't work. Snake repellent doesn't work. Snake repellent doesn't work. Snake repellent does not work. Okay? 
all of the products to repel snakes do not freaking work. Even if they would work if you sprayed it at the snake and the snake didn't like it and went away, if you put it out, they don't give a shit, they don't care, unless you completely coated everything with it to the point where you were nauseous and sick, it doesn't work, snakes don't work that way, snake repellent doesn't work. Stop trying to believe in it, don't hold on to it, don't buy it, don't waste your money on it, stop it. Okay? Uh, one more time, snake repellents do not work. What does work for snakes is to keep areas open where they have to travel across open ground. They don't like to be in the open. It went under your deck because it feels much safer under there. It probably won't live under there unless you have an infestation of mice or other snakes, which king snakes eat, in which case it will live under there until it will clean them out and it will go somewhere else because it needs to be fed. Okay? All right. That's just reality. Um, next, you have the best snake in the world you could have for a person like yourself, one that doesn't want snakes around. So let's say you captured all the king snakes and took them away and put them far away somewhere else where they could be, quote-unquote, somebody else's problem. Then you'll be emailing me next. You're going, Jack, I have copperheads or water moccasins around my house, and I don't know what to do about it. And they're venomous, and I'm scared. And I'd say, with well, a one-year-old running around with venomous snakes around, you should be. Because even though, in general, they don't cause any problems, you know, kids can step on things. That's a bad thing in your Uh, particular environment, one of the more common and, and really dangerous little snakes out there is pygmy rattlesnakes. And pygmy rattlesnakes are dangerous because they have a highly toxic venom, uh, specifically for their size. Because they are rather small, they tend to get in things like flower pots and whatnot, and you reach in, and they are probably one of the snakes that causes the largest number of legitimate bites in the United States. It's a very serious thing, and it certainly can be life-threatening, specifically to a small person like a one-year-old. And guess what king snakes do? They grab them by the face, they roll up around them, they squeeze them really, really tight until the blood goes out into their, the farthest tips of tail and head, and they crush them like a grape under the foot of a fat Italian woman. And then they take their face and they expand it with their mouth and they go over the head of the evil little pygmy rattlesnake. They swallow it whole and they shit it out in a turd. And you want this to go away because you're uncomfortable. Are you really thinking? You have the number one snake predator in the United States living on your property, and you're concerned with snakes, and your solution is to make it go away. If, I were, if you were calling me or emailing me and asking me about keeping venomous snakes off your property, I would tell you in your climate, go find speckled king snakes and bring them to your property and leave them there. And, well, I have a one-year-old, so I'm concerned. You're concerned about what? If the neighbors had a cat, and you didn't mind the cat being around, it didn't really cause any problems, and it was a relatively friendly cat, and the cat came up to your one-year-old and rubbed her leg, and she pet the cat, would you be concerned? Because let me tell you something. If that cat decides it's pissed off, it can do a hell of a lot more harm to your kid than that king snake could ever do. The king snake literally is zero threat to anyone or anything other than venomous reptiles and rodents, and frankly, other reptiles, on your property. So why are you concerned? Because it's a snake? Are you concerned if you're, there was a lizard on your property? It's a reptile. It just happens to have feet instead of no feet. Do, do, do you see where I'm going here? The best thing for you to do if you have king snakes on your property is nothing. Now, I still recommend, because if you live in a place with king snakes, you probably live in a place with venomous snakes, that you do things like make sure you don't create snake habitat where you don't want it. 
But leave the snake alone. Snake repellent doesn't work. And I'm sorry I don't have another answer for you. Because the only way that you can reduce the occurrence of these animals is either to kill them or to capture and relocate them. And let me explain something to you. Relocating a snake to your back 40 does nothing. If, if Snakes travel. Like, you know, if you're talking about, you know, a, a couple hundred yards away, the, the odds are that that snake will come back are actually pretty good. If the habitat is what they're looking for and if there's a food source there. And that's the other thing you have to think about. Like, 99%, this little snake was born of the larger animal or some group of larger animals that live further out on this property. And it hatched, and it crawled out, and it started cruising along, and it maybe ate a little bit here and there, and it, it, it got to your area near your deck. And it was out in the open, and it saw you, a giant, that it did nothing to, try to smash it with a shovel, so it ran under your deck. It's only going to stay under there for long if there's food under there. If there's nothing for it to eat, it's going to get hungry... And it's going to go away. So the translation is, if there's something there for it to eat, you want it there. And if there's nothing for it to eat, it's going to go away. But if you start killing them or relocating them far enough that they don't come back, then I'm telling you in your climate it's only going to be a matter of time before you're dealing with snakes like copperheads and pygmy rattlesnakes. But if you'll grow up, I'm sorry, but if you'll grow up and leave them alone and realize they are no threat to you, then what they will become is your best defense against those venomous reptiles. If I had a venomous reptile problem, I would literally buy snakelings from a breeder and be letting them loose on my property left and right of king snakes. And the particular uh, snake for your climate, Speckled King, is a badass. It will kill venomous snakes larger than itself and consume them, and craft them out in little pellets. So why would you get rid of it? I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's my honest-to-God answer. I would give that answer to anybody that asked the question. And I'm not picking on you. We have been prejudiced against snakes um, most of our lives, uh, specifically in America. And I, I must believe that the Australians look at us with dismay. Because the snakes they have that eat other, eat other snakes in Australia are, um, well, they're very, 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 very venomous to human beings. And, and the fact that we would have such a, a small number of dangerous reptiles and we would have a non-venomous species that can eliminate the dangerous ones and does so happily and is of no harm to us and that we would want to get rid of that, that I, I, can, just, I can just hear the, the Aussie uh, slang and, and dismay by this uh, going on. Um, Next up from Jim in East Texas, he said, could the forum moderator set up a forum for the 10th anniversary parties? With only 50 spots as your get-together, uh, there will likely be disappointed people, a lot of them. I live close enough to drive to Fort Worth, but other people, travel could be cost prohibitive. I bet people all over the country might want to have local get-togethers to celebrate in their town. Also, uh, an excuse for us to eat, meet like-minded people, maybe each group could send you a signed card of their event. I like the general idea. I don't know if the forum is the best place to do it or maybe the Facebook page. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll look into that. I obviously have been set back this week. Uh, it was my intent to get registration up this week. I'm probably gonna, I'm probably going to have registration Saturday because the next Saturday I'm leaving and I want people to get in to, uh, to have the opportunity to make travel arrangements and whatnot. And I talked to Dorothy and I made a decision. 
we're going to raise the number to 60, and we are going to, when we do reservations, we'll, you know, you'll, it'll create a number in the system, and when it creates that number, I will then get in touch with the people that got in, if you want to call it that, and everybody above that, you know, we'll let it run for, you know, I don't know how long, but we'll let a, a bunch more people say they want to come. And then I'll do a random drawing for 10 of those people. I've already been asked by people, like, if you're a couple, do you count as one? No, you count as two. That's what a couple is, two. Um, I'm sorry, we do have to put some limit on this to, to make this work. Uh, and, and, and I'm kind of blown away at people I'm hearing from, from way further away than I thought would want to come. Um, I, 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 I thank you so much for for your support, and I'm sorry that I won't be able to accommodate everybody, but I kind of like the idea of like people on the same day putting together their own little get-togethers and stuff like that. Um, I, I think that's kind of cool. So we'll see what we can do, and we'll see if we can come up with something. What I could really use is a way, because if I'm selling something, I, I have an easy flow control, but if someone knows of a way I could do registrations where um, I could have a I don't know, a way to cut it off or something. I, I'd like some suggestions on that. Jim, thanks for your suggestion. I really hadn't thought of it, but we'll see if we can do something. Next up, I have one of those uh, lifestyle questions that I, I can only give my opinion. I can't really give advice because, you know, it's, it's, it, it is a highly personal decision, and, and you're the one that has to live with the consequences of it doesn't go right. But this comes from Crystal. Crystal says, Hi, Jack. I'm wondering if you have any advice for someone who is looking to move away from security, whether it's real or perceived, of a steady government job with its good benefits and a promise of a pension uh, toward a more self-led employment without any of those cushy buffers. Background. A little over a year ago, I was wooed from a two-decade-long career in journalism to a position in local law enforcement. At the time, I was fed up with the newspaper's management with the promise of a 9-to-5 and good benefits made me feel like I was making the right decision. However, I've regretted the loss of doing what I love and what I'm doing uh, and, I'm good, and what I'm good at doing ever since I took the job. And while I like the people I work with, the job itself makes me miserable. Recently, I was made aware of an opportunity for a part-time job, and if I play my cards right, I can supplement to, to match my current income by writing again for the newspaper. But on my terms this time, I believe it will free up a little time to pursue another avenue of self-employment. I've been thinking of for some time. As you know, I, was, I am also hoping to take on a book writing project. I like the thought of spreading my eggs out of income over several baskets. I tend to overthink everything, and the risk of leaving that secure government job scares me. However, I also know that if I don't take the leap towards what I want, nothing is going to change. Uh, I'm just what-ifing all over the place because I'm afraid of making a bad move. I was just wondering if you, as someone who's done it, would care to share some things to consider that I might not be thinking of when it comes to being self-employed and leaving traditional employment scenario. The good, the bad, and the ugly are welcome. Thanks in advance, Crystal. Well, I would say, Crystal, first of all, you have an opportunity that most people in your position don't have. Um, assuming you get this job, and, and I would definitely apply for it so you can make a completely informed decision, and assuming this job can replace most of or all of the income, then you have a, a net loss to income of zero. But you probably have, a, I say you have a gross loss of income of zero, but you probably still have a net loss. So you have to consider the net loss. And the net loss is, uh, as a self-employed person, you're going to pay your own Social Security, which it has some level of a wash because that gets deducted 
uh, from your income tax uh, burden to a degree. So it offsets some, uh, that other half, that 50% that you pay yourself now. But losing benefits could be huge. So, you know, will you be able to get medical benefits under your husband? What is the cost of that? Those are things to consider from the financial aspect of it. Um, here's the other thing. So you've been doing this job for two years and you hate it. And there's a promise of a pension. Most jobs like you're talking about to get your pension is uh, 20 years minimum. 18 years is a long time to effing hate something. In fact, you know, I, I really want to say the word, but I'm not because I don't want to have to mark this episode explicit in iTunes. But it's, it's, it's an effing a long time to do something you hate if you truly hate it. So I'm inclined in your situation to say that making the leap probably makes sense, but it's pro you have the totality of, of what you know you uh, you're, you're going to do, and the reality is it will your plan will not go as you expect it to. All the things that are good that you think are going to happen, some will, some won't. All the things that are bad are going to happen, you know, you'll think some will and some won't, and it's it's not going to be easy. But it may be easier than for most because if you can land into a position of income, then you can figure things out. When you have enough income to pay the bills and to still keep saving a little bit of money, and if you have more time and you have more freedom and you're happier, you will build a better life for yourself. But the key is, will you actually have the income? So you have to look at the totality of the income quotient in making this decision. But what really, what really hits me here is I hate the job. It's making me miserable. And so I don't know what you should do, but I know that you should do something else. And you should be exploring the other things that you could be doing with your life if you're doing anything that makes you miserable. And it doesn't matter if the job is safe and secure, it has a pension, whatever, if it really makes you miserable. Now, let's speak to some level of pragmatism. You said, you know, I'm two years from my pension. I think we'll stick it out. Because once you have your pension, you can do whatever the hell you want. You know, if somebody writes me and they're in the military and they've been in six years and they hate it, uh, and they're looking at another 14 to draw retirement, and uh, they want to know what I think they should do, 14 years is a long time to be miserable. If you've already been miserable for 16, 18 years, doing two to four more isn't that big a deal. Figure out how to like what you do a little bit for the next couple of years. But you're telling me 18 freaking years. No. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the path you are considering is the path. But what you should be doing is beating and burning every bush to find a path that makes sense for you. And, and that's if you were my son or my daughter, that is the advice I would give you. If, if what you're doing literally makes you miserable, specifically when it doesn't sound like it leads you anywhere you want to go. So if, if, if you were my son or my daughter, in your case my daughter, and you came to me and said, this is making me really miserable being here. And we sat down and we talked about it, and I said, well, what does another year being miserable mean for your career potential? And you're like, well, I'd have two years under my belt, three years under my belt, whatever. I'd have the certification. They're going to send me to do this thing. You know, it's going to impact this way. There's an evolution. And there was something it did by sticking it out a little longer to gain enough experience or a title or something that springboarded you forward in what you really want, then I will put it under the category of paying your dues. If it results in you doing something you really don't want to do, you really don't love, and it doesn't help you get further, then I would put it under the category of wasting your effing life. Because that's what it is. 
you get to go around this freaking big ball a certain number of spins and a certain number of rotate uh, revolutions, right? Rotate and revol revolve. That's what you get to do. You get to take trips on this rock around that big old ball of fire called the sun for a certain number of times. And every day we spin around once, it's one less one of those spin arounds that you get to do. And every year that it goes all the way around that big fireball is one less of those you get to do. So you got to figure out what will make you happy and pursue that. Should I do this particular thing? I don't know. But you should find something that works better for you. And, and that, that is the only answer I can give if you're being totally honest with yourself in this situation. Because the other thing is I have worked with people and I have counseled people that say, I hate my job and I hate this and I hate that. And you say, well, spend the next four weeks, write down everything you like about your job and read that list to yourself five times a day. And every time you think of something new, every time something good comes up about it, add it to your list and do that for three or four weeks and tell me how you feel in a month. And I've had people say, literally say the following, I, I don't know what happened, but the people I work with and the job, it's different now. Well, no, it's not you are. So if you, but it, it, it sounds to me like you're being honest with yourself, but you might want to concurrently attempt that exercise. Everything you like about the job, read it four or five times a day, but work like a freaking dog, right? Like a sled dog, right? Those are the hardest working dogs on the planet. Work like a sled dog in finding other paths. But there's no reason, not, I mean, how much of it to your time would it take? It sounds like it wouldn't take a very long time to write your list or read it. You know, even if you read it in the morning before work, at lunch during work, and after dinner at home, just three times a day, and add to the list, and then see if you really feel this way. And if you do, then you, you, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your life, you owe it to your family to not necessarily take this path, but find a path that brings you back to happiness. Let's take another one. So the next one is um, a tax one. And a uh, guy that wrote in read, uh, said this, the, the following, Tennessee, question mark, really, question mark, exclamation point, and then a quote. Overall, there's a wide gulf between the lowest and highest rates. Wyoming is the lowest at one cent per gallon for beer on taxes, and Tennessee is at the other end of the spectrum, taxed beer at a dollar and twenty nine cents a gallon. It's an article on Thrillist, and it's how much. Uh, here's how much beer taxes are in every U.S. state. In any event, um, the National Beer Institute, which is a thing, says the most expensive ingredient in beer. Uh, nationally is taxes. It costs you. It costs more than any other ingredient in beer. And uh, yeah, this, it, it, I've got a link to the article so you can look at it. I'm not really going to read it because I mean that's the upshot. Is it just breaks down every cent how much a gallon of beer is taxed. Texas, for example, is taxed at 20 cents. Oklahoma taxes beer at 40 cents a gallon, even though they they make you make three two freaking beer uh, and give you shittier beer. Utah taxes at 41 cents. Washington, 26. I'm just picking some random states here. Uh, New Hampshire. Let's see. I'm trying to find it there in a little breakout. Uh, New Hampshire, 30 cents a gallon. Vermont, 27 cents a gallon. Maine is 18 cents a gallon. No, 35 cents a gallon. Wisconsin. Gee, I bet you they tax beer. 48 cents a gallon. Um, and, you know, you kind of get the idea. There's only a few states that are really, really high. Georgia's a buck and a penny. Alabama's a buck oh five, and Tennessee's a buck twenty nine. Those are your three highest states. Oh no, Alaska's a dollar seven. Um, so when 
when this was sent to me, you know, the guy that sends it says, hey, uh, you know, Tennessee. I mean, Tennessee is considered a, a fairly free state, a fairly low-tax state. Uh, why Tennessee would be the highest tax here doesn't surprise me at all. Doesn't surprise me at all. And to make the point, I want to tell you a quick little side story and then pay, play a little pop culture uh, segment for you. There's a movie called Idiocracy. And while not directly applicable here, there's a character in here that represents, in my mind, the state itself in Idiocracy. And his name is Upgrade, with, a, with two Ds for a double dose of pimping. And Upgrade is a pimp. And I'll leave the plot concept out a little bit. But there's a, a part in this movie, which not the part you'll hear today, where this girl's worried that he's going to get her, and I'll explain why it's not really likely, though it ends up being the case by the end of the movie as a joke, um, that he's going to get her. And the other character that you'll hear about here in a second says, you know, don't worry about it, it's not possible. He, she said, oh, you don't know Upgrade. He's going to get his money. Upgrade going to get his money. That's the state. The state's going to get their money. So the state of Tennessee has no, no income tax. Right? No income tax, like Texas and many other states. The thing about most states, except for the ones that get to the extreme, if you look at the aggregate averages, they, they, they tax people pretty close to the same. There's the exceptions like New Jersey and New York and California and Illinois, and Hawaii as well. Um, but most states, when you finally look at how people are affected, and you aggregate the average across everybody, they get hit about the same. Because all of the governments want to do mostly the same shit, which is control people. And they need a way to pay the bills. So it's like, have you ever seen a commercial where you know a guy will explain, uh, you know, like a guy's trying to sell you a car, explains how he doesn't do what everybody else does, even though he does, and he'll get a balloon, and he'll take a balloon, he'll squeeze one side of it and say, well, see, when they when they cut the sales price, they increase the finance rate. When they cut the finance rate, they increase the sales price. That's what governments do with taxes. So Tennessee doesn't tax income. Texas doesn't tax income. Well, what, what's the sales tax in Texas? You know, as much as I love it here, honestly, what's the sales tax in Texas? In most places, eight and a quarter percent. Some places, it's higher. That's a pretty high sales tax, and part of that is to offset you know, the 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 the, uh, the lack of an income tax because they need money. They're going to get their money, okay? Um, and, and then Texas has some of the highest property taxes in the country with the exception of the high-taxed areas in states like California, New Jersey, New York, Illinois. But if you look at a get away from the expensive areas in New York and go into like what they would call up-county New York and look at property taxes, we pay more property taxes than a person in New York State for, for a comparable home. Now, we pay less relative when we live in areas like I live in. Like if you lived in an area like I lived in, in a house like I live in, near you know five boroughs or you know some of the, uh, the upper areas of, of New Jersey or something, you might pay twenty thousand dollars on the house and I'm paying like four on but four is really high. Four is really high to, to to pay a tax to live in my own home. And, and and so that's how Texas makes it up. Now Tennessee, some of you are gonna be pissed at me, but this is a reality. There is a large contingent of the religious community, specifically the conservative religious right, that doesn't think you should be drinking. They actually use the term booze as a verb, as in, he's boozing again. 
So when you want to tax alcohol in a place with a large contingency of voters that are like that, it's just a sand tax, and they don't really give a damn. Because, I mean, and I know people think, well, that's all, that's not really a thing. It sure as hell is. I've had conversations with people about the fact that you cannot buy, um, you can't go to a liquor store on a Sunday in Texas. And I've had them look me straight in the eye and say, well, they don't need to be boozing on a Sunday. That's Jesus' day. What? First of all, you can do whatever you want with your Sunday. You can go to church, you can booze, you cannot booze, and I'm not going to get in your face. It's none of my business what you do with your Sunday. And it's none of your business what I do with mine until I get in your way or you get in mine. But controlling commerce because you don't like it for religious reasons doesn't make sense. But it works. And what has been the kind of the going theme of today's show? If it works, they'll do it. And it only, they'll only stop doing it when it stops working. But I wanted to bring a little bit of comedy into your life today. So this is from the beginning, the very beginning of the movie Idiocracy. And I, I think you'll get a kick out of it, and I'll come back and explain why I drug it into this after that. And if you've never seen this movie, um, it was meant to be a comedy. It's kind of turned into a documentary. Gentlemen, meet Joe Bowers, our first subject for the human hibernation experiment. Now, as you know, throughout the years, many of our best pilots, soldiers, and military leaders often go their entire careers without ever seeing battle. With the Human Hibernation Project, we will be able to save our best men, frozen in their prime, for use when they are needed most. Joe here is not one of our best men. Mr. Bowers was chosen primarily for how remarkably average he is. Uh, extremely average in every category. R remarkable, truly. Uh, the most average person in our entire armed forces. Additionally, he has no family, is unmarried, is an only child, and both parents are deceased, making him an ideal candidate with no one to ask any nosy questions should something go wrong with the experiment. We had a little less luck in finding a female researcher's dream within our ranks and were forced to look into the private sector. This is Rita. Like Joe, she has no immediate family. Rita agreed to participate in this experiment in exchange for dropping of certain criminal charges and a small fee. We did, however, have to come to an arrangement with her pimp, a gentleman who goes by the name Upgrade, which he spells thusly, with two Ds, as he says, for a double dose of this pimping. Upgrade agreed to loan us Rita for exactly one year and keep quiet on the matter in exchange for certain leeways with the local authorities in running his pimp game. First, however, there was the difficult challenge of gaining his trust. Collins we skip the technicals, please? Sure. Let me just finish here. You see, a pimp's love is very different from that of a square. Collins! Fine. We'll move on. It is a fascinating world, though. Okay, so the, the, he gonna get his money thing. So these two characters that you just heard about there, um, the girl and the guy, they... Uh, They, they go into this uh, cryogenesis freezing whatever, and they're supposed to be in there for a year, and something happens and they get forgotten about, and they end up both being woke up like three or 400 years into the future or something like that, and society has been dumbed down. It also starts out with this concept of like, there's these two yuppies, and they're like, well, we don't know when we're going to get pregnant. It's not the time. The market's not right. And it ends up the guy dies. The chick has her eggs frozen. She's thinking someday maybe she'll have a kid with his sperm that he, he donated while he had a heart attack at the sperm clinic. And 
On the other side, there's Scott Bubba, and he's just cranking out kids left and right. And so that's the type of people that take over the world. And so they wake up in this world. It's just a complete idiocracy, this professional wrestler's president, and they're putting Brondo, which is basically Gatorade on the crops, and that's why they're not growing. It's all kinds of nonsense. Um, but they are like 400 years into the future or whatever it is. It's not really relevant. 400 years is long enough. <clears throat> and this girl's telling the guy, you don't understand, Upgrade's going to get me. He's going to get his money. And he says, we're 400 years into the future. By the way, he's considered the smartest man in the world at this point, even though he was completely average. We're 400 years into the future. He's been dead for hundreds of years. And she said, oh, you don't understand. He's going to get his money. Folks, I could not come up with a more succinct explanation for the state if I tried. It doesn't matter how they format it. It doesn't matter where they put the tax. It doesn't matter how they market the tax. They are a giant pimp pimping us all out for their own uses, selling our labor in the form of debt, and they're going to get their money. And the only way we'll ever change that even a little bit is to stop letting this type of class warfare, division, and thinking that it matters what someone who really doesn't affect your life does with their time and their life. If they want to ruin their life, as long as you don't have to pay for it, why do you care? If they want their life to be fantastic in a way that you don't think is good, why do you care? Why can't you live your own life? I mean, if there's one thing I could give the average American, it would be the ability to live their own life without concern for what other people do if it does not affect them. And that doesn't mean to not be concerned for other people, not to help other people, but you don't have to interfere. How about this? You can only help somebody who is open to or wants your help. Now, there's a place for interventions. I, I accept that with people that you love, your family member and all. But some guy living 15 states away that wants to do something you don't like is not your business. It's really not. And if we could just get that through our heads, all this shit that they do to control us would stop working, and it wouldn't be so easy for them to get their money, which they're going to do as long as we keep acting like a bunch of dumbasses, and they keep acting like our pimps. And that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, I don't know if that was put in there intentionally that way, but it's uh, pretty accurate. Uh, let's take another one. So th this last one today completely it comes from John in Moore Park, just completely sums up the whole sticking your nose where it doesn't need to be. So I'm not going to read the article, but I'll give you the upshot. There's a group, a lab group, at the University of California, Davis, that's basically calling for the government to enact stricter regulations across the board for backyard chickens. And specifically pointing out things like uh, in, in Denver, the areas around Denver, Colorado, is one of the areas where they collect data and... Um, They, they, you know, there's all these chickens, and here's these uh, things that they're so concerned about, and uh, how, how big a risk salmonella is. And there's a, a couple things that are, are really wrong with this. Number one, uh, they're saying that there's tons of uh, these, these salmonella cases that are a direct result of backyard poultry, but they provide no evidence to this whatsoever. Um, associated with poultry is not the same as associated with backyard poultry. And so they show all the cases of salmonella, multi-state salmonella in the United States. And then they show like Colorado and the number of people who have become ill in Colorado directly related to poultry for multi-state uh, salmonella is two to four. Ground zero where all this is going on is two to four. And it doesn't only include backyard cases related to poultry. It's all poultry. 
they also bring up some more FUD uh, talking about the number of avian influenza cases that occurred in Egypt, ignoring the fact that none occurred here. Zero. Zilch. Um, but they're, they're, they're calling on municipalities and the federal government, and this is a, 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 a group that's as close to private as possible, probably paid for with a grant by tax dollars, though, at a university saying government needs to do something where we don't have a problem. And, and, and the solution to something like, well, well, and there's one point here that a lot of back, you know, like 25% of respondents said they don't wash their hands after handling birds or eggs. Well, then instead of saying we should educate people that you like should wash your hands after handling birds and eggs, uh, we, sh we need government to make them do it. And, and this is just a perfect example of how screwed up the world has become. First of all, there's not a problem here. There is not a problem here. There are more people keeping backyard chickens than ever before, I would say ever before, than, than since World War II in our country. Since it kind of went on a vogue after World War II and the GIs came back and everybody you know, got into the suburbs and everything, we have more people than in the last 60 years keeping chickens, and we don't have people killing over and dying. We don't have people getting sick, and, and being ill and being dead are different things. And just because a person has chickens, contracts salmonella, doesn't mean they got salmonella from the chickens. Let's take a look at the salmonella count and an average piece of factory chicken you buy in the store. Let's go get 10 packs. Let's try that. Let's go get 10 packs of chicken from freaking Publix or Albertsons or whatever. And let's have them tested for how much salmonella is in them. And then let's go get somebody's backyard eggs and have them swab for salmonella. And let's see which one of those poses a greater risk to public health. But we don't want to talk about that because we're not going to interfere with somebody's life that way. We have plenty of regulations for Tyson and Purdue and all. And they have all the money to cover it. And they use that to keep people. See, this is the type of shit I'm talking about. And what this does is it takes the typical, completely dumbed-down, idiocracy-prone idiot in America today, which, by the way, if you've seen the movie, is actually a lot more like the yuppie couple than the bubba couple, and it preys on their fears, their irrational fear. Oh, my God, what will happen if my neighbor has a chicken? My little perfect angel will get salmonella and die. You know what will happen to your kid if your neighbor gets chickens? Maybe they'll eat good food because your neighbor will have more eggs than they know what to do with. Now, there are some legitimate things brought up by this. I think the number one problem we have with people keeping chickens is people have lost the concept in America of what a pet is and what a piece of livestock is. And four years into it, they have a chicken that lays three eggs a year, and they don't want to feed the chicken anymore, but they don't want to kill the poor chicken. While they eat the seminal-laden Purdue chicken in their freezer, they won't turn that hen into a stewing chicken or find somebody to do it. And it's pretty sad. And, I mean, I think, like, what we need, if we're going to do anything in America for the backyard chicken movement, is a, a hardcore, realistic education. This is how you should be doing things. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but there's here, these are the things that work and are safe for the chickens and for your kids and for the people and everything else. Here's some fundamental realities. Chickens get old, they stop laying eggs. It's your chicken, it's your responsibility. If you're limited to four chickens and you like having eggs and you get four chickens, they're all going to stop laying about the same time and you're going to have chickens that might live another five years giving you a couple, three eggs a quarter if you're lucky. 
So you're either going to have to kill them, or you're going to have to give them to somebody to kill them because nobody wants them. There's no place for these birds to go. There isn't. You know, I mean, they're really, they're, they're, this myth that there's like farmers that will just take your chickens because they'll like, they like having lots of, no, the farmers have chickens to make money. You have chicken to make eggs. And if you're not willing to take responsibility for the end of life cycle of that bird, don't get chickens. Plain and simple. But it, it's amazing to me that like the concept that your, your neighbor Judy with four little birds could cause a problem for your community. When there are birds flying and shitting all over your neighborhood. You know, when the, when the mulberry tree gets ripe in spring and there's just a metric shit ton of purple shit all over everybody's cars, that's not a health crisis, but, you know, Debbie's four chickens are a health crisis. This is, now, see, this isn't even the government crying about something or trying to get involved. This is somebody begging the government to do something that's not necessary. And gee, it's from California. What a freaking shock. Here's the thing for you people in California. How about all you people in California just shut the hell up and at least confine your bullshit to the state of California? You know, you guys are doing a really good job of making yourselves the homeless capital of the world. You have, you, you have one of the few insulting things that our president says that's truly completely accurate when he calls your governor, Governor freaking Moonbeam, because he is. He's a freaking nut. You, you, you've turned your cities into sanctuaries, not for illegal aliens, but for illegal criminal aliens that commit violent felonies. We don't need your advice. Now, the temperance there... I'll bet you this is paid for by somebody like the Natural Poultry Association, either directly or indirectly through to advocacy for a grant. Because they don't like this. And I think that people don't understand how things work at the scale they work in the United States, in our, our society that is basically mostly based on large corporations that are publicly traded. You'd think that Susie and Tammy and Joey and John and Jack and our little backyard chickens that produce a few eggs wouldn't be a big deal to large poultry producers. They wouldn't really care. But when you measure everything you do on growth, anything that takes away a tenth of a point of growth can drastically affect your stock price, your projections, your dividend, all that other stuff. We live in a society requiring perpetual growth. So anything that takes anything at all from industry is going to be attacked. And that's what's probably behind this. Though I'll admit that's conjecture. I have no evidence. I haven't researched it that far. But I'm pretty confident that if you do, you'll find out that's the case. But again, here we have a group of people sitting on their ass in a lab in California telling people in Denver they're doing it wrong when the people in Denver don't have a problem with what's going on. And basically begging the state at every level to up regulations on something that's nobody's business, you keeping a few freaking birds. You know, they're not worried about somebody who has four or five parrots in their house, but they're worried about somebody who has four or five chickens in their backyard? Well, they, they don't have regulations the way they do for dogs. How much regulation do we have for dogs in America, really? And by the way, we have dog problems, don't we? We have dogs running loose. Dog. I mean, it's not like... See, this is the other thing. The mythology is, that, well, if we make more regulations, the problems will go away. No, they don't. All you do is interfere with people doing things the right way, and the people doing things the wrong way don't give a shit anyway. My, my next-door neighbor, my back neighbor, on Friday evening, tried to burn the neighborhood down. Not directly, but indirectly. They, they decided to start a, a fire to burn brush in the middle of a freaking dry, barren field... 
You know, all the grass is like thigh high and dry, and they set a brush pile on fire. Gee, it got out of hand. My wife dialed 911. I grabbed a hose and basically started spraying down our property line. Uh, but I was like, if it gets into the, the back woodlot, we got to go. So I had my wife start to figure out what to do. Fire department got here like that, put the fire out. I put it on Facebook, and somebody said, well, Jack, how would an anarchist society handle this? Like, if you don't have the state to get involved, how would you stop your neighbor from this behavior? Well, first of all, the state didn't stop my neighbor from doing it, did they? There's not, they didn't do a damn thing to prevent the behavior. We had some clown up in, uh, in, in Arkansas that did this three times, almost set the mountain on fire three times. Twice a guy that was local to our area, that lived right there, that did road work that we, we, we'd pay him privately to do because he had a private road, jumped on his bulldozer with nobody asking to start pushing fire brakes in. And in one instance, he pushed an access path for the fire department to get their vehicles to where they could so they could actually start fighting the fire. And all three times they saved the, the, the mountain. But in the end, you know what stopped the guy from doing it? Not fines. He was told, if you do this again, we're going to bulldoze your house. That's anarchy, baby. And you know what? That worked a hell of a lot better, didn't it? Because as far as I know, he ain't set the damn mountain on fire again. Because I think he believes it. He might believe it because it might be true. You know? Just saying, could find a reason to have to. Yeah, I was trying to save the place. <laughs> so this concept that if we put out a law, it will stop a behavior doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, the only purpose we should have for any real law is the protection of property And person. I mean, if you can justify any law in any form of the state, that would be the only way to do it. And it still is not going to be 100%, but what it does allow is for an organized method of recourse, which is to prevent the type of anarchy they tell you about on TV, not the kind we talk about here. And it, it can work. The problem I've always seen is you give a government power, it will use that power to give itself more power, which will use to give itself more power, and you always end up in the same place. In other words, cancer reproduces and the state is cancer. But anyway, those are my thoughts on that. On that note, if you like our work here and the things that we do and you want to help support us, there's a painless, easy way to do that. And that's to do your online shopping at a little website called tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. tspaz.com. When you get there, you can see all the reviews that I have done on Amazon. You can see them chronologically, the most recent ones, and you can see them broken down by category. And as long as you do your shopping through tspaz.com, when you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and what we do no matter what you buy. However, you can check out our individual reviews. I got one for you today. It's one that you guys have been asking about for a recommendation for a long time, and it's a sous vide cooker. And sous vide, for those that don't know, is a way that we heat water, we put stuff in a bag, we put the bag in the water, and we heat the item to a specific temperature. And when I say specific, I mean specific. I mean like if you want 138 degrees, you get 138 degrees, not 136.9, not 141, you get 138 degrees. Why would you want to do this? Let's start with the, the, the most popular thing to sous vide, a steak. Let's say you want your steak done to 135 degrees, beautiful red, you know, uh, medium rare. And you'd like it that way all the way edge to edge. Well, you put it in the bag, and one-inch steak will go in for about an hour. You set the water to 135 degrees due to equilibrium. Everything in the water, including the steak, comes up to 135 degrees. Note the steak will not go to 136 degrees or 137 degrees. It will stay at that exact temperature for as long as you leave it in there. You can leave it too long, but if it's supposed to be in there for an hour and it stays for an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes, even two hours, it's probably not anything at all. It certainly won't overcook or get any more done. It can't. It can't go higher than that temperature because it's in a bath at that temperature. 
You then take it out, you dry it off well, you put it on a scorching hot surface for about 30 seconds each side to sear that beautiful crust on the on it. It's already been seasoned inside the bag however you want it, and you end up with a perfectly cooked steak. If you wanted to do this for multiple people that want their steaks done at multiple levels, you would need multiple units, but you could do that as well. Okay, So that is one of the reasons for it. But there's also other things you can do for it. Have you ever, like, fried chicken? You do, like, a battered fried chicken. And you, you always fry it a little bit longer than you really want to, and the batter always gets a little bit more dark than you would really want to because the chicken has to be done inside. Take your chicken, throw it in a bag, season it however you want to, sous vide it to 165 degrees. Chicken's done. It doesn't look done. It, they don't look good when they first come out. You've got to finish it some way. But it's done. It's cooked all the way to the bone. It's perfectly juicy. It's perfectly seasoned. Now batter it, throw it in the deep fryer. Just till it's golden brown, take it out. Perfect fried chicken. I am probably going to part out a chicken today. I'm going to take half of it, and I'm going to do it with Walker's wood uh, jerk seasoning, and the other half just with my chicken rub, because my wife's not big on the jerk. And we'll do half and half, each in its own bag, throw it in the, in the, the sous vide pot, bring it to 165 degrees, finish it on the grill for just enough to crisp the skin. Perfectly cooked chicken, not overcooked, not undercooked, no red spots along the bone, not the wings are cooked to one level and the breast is cooked to another. And the, no, everything's cooked to the same temperature. All we're doing is you can throw the whole chicken in there and then throw it under the broiler to crisp it. Perfectly cooked. There's so many things you can do with sous vide. It, it, it's, it's a real awesome, awesome thing. And the Anova cooker is the one that I've come down on. I, I bought a couple before. One was a cheap brand. I won't even rec I won't even name it because it was just such a shitty one. And I want to see like, can you get a fifty dollars sous vide machine that works? And the answer was pretty much no. Um, the other one was a Jewel. It was like two hundred dollars, and it was wonderful for six months, and then it just died. Now I like the Jewel's app and the recipes and all the stuff at Chef Steps that goes along with it, and I would subscribe to that without buying their their equipment and buy the Anova. The Anova, what I love about it, it does Bluetooth or you can get the Wi-Fi. So check this out. You take your steak out in the morning and it's frozen and what I do is I season my steaks I label them freezer bag them uh, you know vacuum seal freezer bag and throw them in the freezer and then I take them out and let them thaw out and throw them in the sous vide because I don't really travel much or work away from home anymore but if you work away from home you take the frozen steaks out in the morning you throw them in a pot of cold water and you throw a whole bunch of ice in there you stick your Anova in there you turn it on you set your temperature and you don't start it when you get off work you log into your account at Anova and your device is registered, and it's on your network, and you say, start. It starts melting ice, whatever's left of it. You're, you're mostly thought out by them, but you're completely safe, and it brings it up to temperature. You get home, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes after you get home, your steak's done. It can sit there for another 20 or 30, 40 minutes, whatever. It's okay. It's not going to overcook. You get your salad ready, your sides ready. You pull it out of the bag. You dry it off, sear it, sit down, perfect steak. How badass is that? There's a lot of other things that you can do with it. It's a really, sous vide and gel, just a really cool thing. Anyway, if you're considering getting a sous vide cooker after using three, um, I, I don't really have anything bad to say about the Jewel. Mine died. Plenty of people are happy with theirs. It is faster. It's got more power. It's 1,100 watts versus the 800 watts of the Jewel, um, of the of the Anova. But in the end, when they dropped the price of the Anova to 130 bucks with the uh the Wi-Fi option, and the Jewel's still almost 200 It's just a better value, and if you want your stuff to heat up faster, use hot tap water, first of all. Don't use cold water. You don't have to worry about it. You know, it went on the, the element of the hot water. It never touches the food, so it doesn't matter. Uh, or like what I usually do, I'll, I'll fill my electric kettle 
when I'm doing a fairly large pot with a lot of water because I'm doing a lot of food, and I'll, I'll bring that up to a food boil and dump it in there, and it'll come almost right to 130, 140 degrees with the other water immediately, and then it just gets up to whatever temperature I want, holds it, holding it, it's fine. Uh, I really like it. I think the interface with the phone is slick, and uh, check it out. If you have been kicking around the idea, I, I think they've come to a really great price point with a really reliable unit, and everybody I know that owns the Innova is happy with it, including me. Um, I waited a long time to come down with a recommendation on this. I consider this kind of a long-term investment, and I wanted to be able to give you the best recommendation possible, and I'm pretty comfortable recommending Innova. If you've been considering the Jewel, I, I wouldn't say don't do it. I'm just saying I bought one, and it died. And my Innova I've had for as long, and it hasn't. So that's all I'm saying there. And it costs less, and it works every bit as good. That brings us to uh, our song of the day. We are going into uh, something I kind of screwed up, Pink Floyd Week, by getting sick and taking Monday off. Uh, we won't have a round number of days, and we'll carry Pink Floyd Week into another week, and I'm taking vacation the week after next. There's only three days anyway, so maybe I'll, I'll rearrange some things, but... Uh, I'm really happy to start off with some Pink Floyd this week. Uh, today's song is one that many of you probably, unless you're real Floyd fans, haven't heard. It's certainly not one of their better-known songs. Uh, it's called, um, uh, sorry, Childhood's End. And uh, it was released on Obscured by Clouds in 1972. Obscured by Clouds is the soundtrack for a French film called Le Valley, which means The Valley. And um, it com also comes from Arthur C. Clarke's science fiction novel of the same title. Although David Gilmore knew of the novel, the lyrics have little to do with the book. I think he just liked the the, the song. But uh, it's it's a pretty dark and sinister song. And the video that goes with it, you might want to watch, brings up a lot of images of the Cold War. Again, 1972, we were at a time when most Americans still believed that sooner or later, the, us and the Russians were going to nuke each other. Um And there's there's some pretty interesting components to this song, but what it really is about is the point we reach where our optimism of childhood is replaced with the stark reality of the world. Let me read you the, uh, the middle verse, and it kind of gets right to the heart of the matter. You set sail across the sea of long past thoughts and memories, childhood's end, your fantasies, merge with harsh realities, And then as the sail is hoist, you find your eyes growing moist. All the fears never voiced say you have to make your final choice. How, basically, that means, like, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to decide what part you play or do not play in this real world And since you can't pretend it doesn't exist anymore as a child? And, and there's a lot to be said with that in today's show, even though I never planned it. These, these songs always seem to dovetail back in without being so dark and sinister. Again, today's recurring theme was the only way we'll actually take control of our lives is to stop trying to control other people's lives. So we have to make a decision. What role are we going to play when we get past the fantasies? And the fantasies are just not the fantasies of childhood. The, the fact that the state can create a perfect society, the fact that every time somebody's uncomfortable or offended or hurt or harmed even, that we can just pass a law and make it not happen or pass a law and make it go away. And if we just did enough... We could make it all okay. That's a fantasy. People always say, well, what would, your, what would your anarchist utopia look like? I don't know. I don't believe in utopia. If there is a utopia, it's in an afterlife. I'm not sure that exists, but I, I certainly don't believe it exists as human beings on planet Earth. I, I, I just think we can do better. 
And the first place is to let go of the fantasy that we can, we can make our lives better by controlling other people when they're not harming us. And then there is the darker, sinister version of this that the song's really about. And it all applies. And that's what I love about music and I love about art. It can be interpreted so many different ways. It means so many different things to so many different people. I think you'll see a lot of that with one of the more artistic groups of all time in Pink Floyd as we journey through Pink Floyd Week and today since Jack screwed it up. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Infinite sky